0: We're in Exodus chapter 18. Those of you not familiar with Scripture, Exodus is in the beginning of the Bible, right after the first book, Genesis. Exodus 18, right after the uh, Exodus out of Egypt by the Israelites around uh, roughly 3,400 years ago. Starting in verse 5. Moses tells us that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet her father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in this way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. (laughs) Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and your people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them known the way which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure And all the people will go to their place in peace. May God bless the reading of this intriguing word. You may be seated. (laughs) I need to start today by telling you that sometimes preaching can be autobiographical. It's an experience where you preach on something you are either convicted about or it's right up in your face or both. Today is one of those days. Today, we're going to talk about stewardship of time. And let me tell you why the issue of time is right up in my face. So, you know, as a pastor, I have a very full life, a very busy life. Pastors are on call all the time. We tend to work at morning meetings, day meetings, and evening meetings, all attending to the leadership of the church, not to mention even caring for our own wife and kids. In the last few months, I've been particularly breathless regarding time. I've had family members to look out for. Many of you know my dad's been struggling. I appreciate your prayers for him. He's here today. He's hanging in there. He's been in a fight. Recently, in the last few weeks, my own wife, Elizabeth, has been suffering from a painful neck thing called a cervical stenosis of the spine. And then this week, I had a step grandmother pass away. She was 96 years old. She's in heaven with the Lord. And our family, I think, is doing really okay with that. But you know, there's one thing I can say in the midst of managing all these events and scrambling amidst the changes I'm tired. I'm tired. Now, I don't want you to feel sorry for me when I say that because there's a larger point to telling you all of this. In fact, I dare say, I know that many of you are in similar circumstances and could say the exact same thing. I'm tired, or probably the better thing to say is I'm stressed. Some of you are double-timing it at work. Young moms here are trying to keep up would your kids keep them healthy or attend to their sicknesses, the flu's going around? And there's always, when you have young kids, the thing where you're trying to keep them from killing themselves. And the result is we get to the end of the day and we're worn out and say, I'm tired and you know, the running, running uh, metaphor we have for this kind of life that we live in modern American culture is uh, that of, of doing a triathlon while juggling at the same time. It's exhausting. And the question is, how do we steward the life that we have? How do we steward the time that we have? How do we manage our time well so that we can get to the end of our lives and say, that was a life well lived. Well, believe it or not, Moses, of all people, was dealing with very similar questions in our text. On some level, he and the Israelites were also overwhelmed in their time and with their needs. In fact, in our text today, we find the Israelites uh, are in an extremely difficult situation They just made it out of Egypt in a spectacular, supernatural way. And chapter 18 comes after a time where the God of the universe took on the superpower of the world and defeated them without the Israelites even throwing a rock. He destroys Pharaoh's army. The people cross the Red Sea. And in chapter 18, the Israelites, all one million of them, find themselves on the other side of a Red Sea in a very unfriendly place, the wilderness. More specifically, chapter 18 tells us us that they were uh, really standing with God in the wilderness near Mount Sinai, which where we think it is in general is very much out in the middle of nowhere. Now remember, at this point, there are no Harris Teeters nearby, so you can get food. And there's definitely no QT gas station to get those really cool drinks they have. So God has to provide. They were, if you will, sojourners. Sojourners living in a land that was not their home. And the wilderness, where they were sojourners, was where they felt their lack of resources. In fact, that's the metaphor for us living in our world is we are in a wilderness, sojourning, feeling our need with sometimes no obvious relief. Indeed, in our culture today, the pace of life is so intense sometimes with what's being asked of us, the decisions we must make, the things we must do, that we feel our lack most acutely. And we feel like we don't have enough resources, like we're not enough. Of course, God provides relief for the Israelites in their time. He provided manna, supernatural manna, and water. And in the case of Moses, as our text tells us in verses 5 through 12, God even provides his own family back to him. Uh, Verses 5 through 12 tell us that Moses' father Jethro ends up bringing Moses' wife Zipporah and his two boys back to meet him after a harrowing duel with Pharaoh. So they all are in the wilderness, wandering around, sojourners, feeling like they don't have enough even to live. But it doesn't stop there. One million people are together in a high-stress environment at the foot of a mountain, lacking resources. Let me ask you, how do you think those million people would relate to each other in those stressful environments? We can only imagine that they would be getting on each other's nerves. You can imagine how they treat each other was often pretty snippy. In other words, this was an environment for conflict, for relational stress. So how does Moses handle it? Well, he sets up court, much like we have in downtown Monroe or downtown Charlotte, except with this one difference. He is the only judge and only mediator for one million people. Now, Jethro, his father-in-law, comes along and sees all this, and look at his response to this in verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. You Imagine this line of lots and lots of people. And then Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, and he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and the people stand around from morning till evening? I mean, think about it. Hundreds, thousands of people are surrounding Moses, waiting in line to get a case handled, a dispute handled. And, and here's what Jethro tells Moses. He says, dude. Well, that's how they greet each other in 14th century B.C., ancient Near East. Dude, what are you doing? Moses said, I'm serving the people. They come to me to judge between disputes and to teach them the law of God. They want to know what God thinks, so they come to me. And look at verse 17 and 19 then at how uh, how Jethro responds to this. Verse 17, Moses' in law said to him, what, are you, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Jethro says, Moses, dude, this is not good. You and the people are going to be dead by the end of this. And Why is that? Because you think it's all about you. Me, my, eye is how Moses sees the situation. You can expect that, of course. Moses is feeling pretty good. He just was the instrument through which God used to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He had... Uh, put his staff out and they crossed the red sea on dry ground i mean it was extraordinary things he's feeling pretty good and he's thinking man i can really help these people but jethro says dude this is too much for you it's too big of a task for one man you're not enough let me put it this way jethro is rebuking moses and telling him you have no sense <laughs> no sense Now, what do I mean by no sense? Well, when I say no sense, I mean what we talked about last week in 1 Peter, an awareness of God and each other and how the things are supposed to be. And really, this gets at the issue of stewardship of time. We are tired, and we struggle with with, uh, our time because we have no sense of the divine. We have no sense of what time is supposed to look like relative to to our living and relative to God. And so I'm going to suggest there are four ways that Moses has no sense in our text. And Jethro helps him to see what was a divine sense of time as a result. First way Moses has no sense is this. He has no sense of time as God intended it. Moses worked as if he had all the time and energy to pull this off. But Jethro says, Moses, dude, you're not God. You're not God. This is the first sense that we have to have around time, is that we are not God. God alone is timeless. God alone is eternal. He's above time. Do you understand that? Time is a created thing. God is above and beyond that, was before time. He's eternal. In fact, you know what God's name is? It's Yahweh in the Hebrew. That means I am. So when you would say God's name in your prayers, like in the Psalms, among other places, you'd call out on Yahweh, I am. It's never I was, or I will be, or I might be. It's I am always in the present tense. That's because God is above and beyond time. He's eternal. He is not bound by time and space. So that begs the question, how do we look at time then? Well, look at our, next, our first slide up here. First slide. There it is. Thank you. God, because he's above and beyond time and even created time, he's eternal, has a plan for time. And this is the plan is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Through the work of Christ God has created the world, God has in the fall redeemed the after the fall redeemed the world and he is taking the world to a destination. He has a purpose to it. He is driving time in his providence. You see, that's where you got to understand that God has created time if you will, so we would understand his eternality relative to us. There's another thing you need to know about time so you can have a sense of time. And that's this, and oh, this is a hard one for me. <laughs> you ready for this? Time is a resource. Just like money, just like things you have, things you use in life, time is a resource. Not only that, it's a fixed resource. God gave all of us here, you ready for this, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 and one quarter days a year. And he also gives all of us varying lengths of our lives. We have to understand that we are bound by time. Time, in other words, is a gift to us that we must steward. Everyone here gets the same amount of time except for the length of our lives. And so, what I mean by that is really simple. Oh, this is a hard one, okay? We all have enough time. Say what? We all have enough time. This is the g- time that God has given us. We have enough. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Dean, you're crazy. You lost it, buddy. I live my life in a hurry with job, with kids' activities, with school, with sports, with church responsibilities. I can't believe that I have enough time. I'm barely able to even keep up with what I've going. Now, i got to tell you, I've attended Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People seminar. It was very helpful for organizing my life. But here's what I've learned through the years. In the end, the issue really isn't that we are managing our time Because time is fixed, the issue is that we don't manage ourselves. That's the issue. This was Moses' problem. He had no sense of what he was supposed to be doing with his time and with the people's time, I might add. And Jethro effectively says, stop thinking you're able to pull this off with the limits of time you have stop thinking so highly of yourself. And in his case he actually teaches uh, Moses delegation and says find other people to do the work that needs to be done. So here's the number one issue relative to our no, having no sense of time and it's this we have to believe, I mean repent rather we have to repent of believing we can actually do it all. That means we must submit ourselves to the Lord. Now that brings me to my second thing that Moses had no sense of. Moses had no sense of limits. Now, we only have so much time every day, and we only have so many years to live in this life. Death will come to all of us unless Jesus returns sooner. And as a result, we are reminded daily that with death coming, man is born of trouble in a few days, as Job says, that we have to plan for the end that is ultimately going to come. I was reminded that yesterday at my grandmother's funeral. She lived 96 years. Man, that's almost a century. That's a long time. But even her life came to an end. And as a result, we live in a world that says, you know what, you can do it all. You can have it all. And this is the worst temptation of all of them with how to use our time. We, you really don't want to miss this opportunity. How many times do we hear that? On the television, among our friends, you don't want to miss this opportunity. This might be the only time it happens. You know, I had a good friend in college, and he loved college life. I mean, he really took it all in. He did it all. He did uh, intramural sports, varsity. He was a young life leader. He was socializing, and, of course, he had to do schoolwork. Oh, yeah, that's an important thing, guys. Don't forget that. One day he found he was feeling kind of down, and so he sat down with a mentor, and his mentor asked him about all that he was doing with his life. And his mentor drew out this grid of his, all his days, you know, morning and evening, and he drew it out. And so his friends, uh, my friends said, well, I do this, this, and this. And they started filling in the grids of his whole week. And by the end of that time, my friend felt pretty good because he had this full life. But then his mentor said, you know, I'm impressed with all that you're doing, but there's only one problem with this entire way of living. You have no time to sleep. My friend was cutting out many hours of sleep just so he could get everything done. Folks, opportunity is a good thing. There are many good blessings and opportunities to enjoy blessings, but just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. You and I have enough time to do what we need to do every day. Why can I say that? because of Christ Jesus Christ did not jump on every opportunity every good opportunity that he could in his life think about this Jesus the eternal Son of God who was not bound by time chose to enter into our world in the incarnation become one of us so he would be bound by time and dare I see even limits and what's shocking is that Jesus gave up opportunities to spend his time. Think about this. In Mark chapter 1, right after Jesus has healed a bunch of people, after he's preached and people say, wow, this is great stuff, he's out praying one morning. And his disciples come and find him and say, man, we've been looking for you. It's, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. There are people already lining up for you to heal, and they're dying to hear you. There are hundreds of them. you got to come. And you know what Jesus does at that point? It's shocking. He looks at him after he's prayed and spent time with his father, knowing what he's supposed to do with his life and his calling, and says, we're done here. We're leaving. We're going to the next town over. What? Jesus, your exit poles are dynamite. Your brand is spreading like crazy. Everybody's got a bumper sticker about you, and you're leaving. Why is it Jesus did that? Do you realize that Jesus in his life did not heal every person in Judea and Galilee? Nor did he share the gospel with every single person who came along. Do you realize Jesus only focused on the people he was supposed to be focusing on? He left the world, even in his death, saying three amazing words. It is Finished, not oh man, I wish i 'd have done that, oh gosh, I could have done that. No, he said it is finished. How can Jesus do that for the first thirty years of his life? Jesus did nothing remarkable, <laughs> and yet he says, it is finished. I think Pete Gazerro says an important quote. A quote about limits in our use of time, when he says, Jesus sought to be human in his use of time. If he accepted limits, why can't we? The number one temptation for Christ in the wilderness, if you want to even think of that, and the number one temptation for us uh, in our wilderness today is this, jump on every opportunity that comes your way. Never say no. Always be bound by the guilt of saying yes to everything. Why do we seize every good opportunity for our time? Why do we say yes and overcommit? It's because we're guilty. We're afraid to say no. That we'll miss out on the opportunity that we're going to face. When if you think eternally like Christ calls us to... When you actually think of the story that was up on the screen, you realize, you know, even if I miss this opportunity, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I get eternity in a new heavens and new earth with God where opportunities will be going on forever. That's eternal thinking. We must come then to a sense of the eternal rather than a sense that we can do everything. That brings us to the third lack of sense that Moses had no sense of, and that was no sense of calling. Moses had no sense of calling in the use of his times. Jethro got this. He saw Moses misusing his time and, and not doing what he should be doing, and he gave Moses two principles in our text. And the first principle is this. It's the Jethro principle. And the Jethro principle goes like this. What can you leave for others to do when God calls them to do it? You know, sometimes when you're doing things in this world and making choices, you are actually bumping someone out of the way and not letting them actually do what they're supposed to be doing. What are you doing that should really be handed over to someone else? Some would call it delegation. I think we ought to call it calling in the Holy Spirit Second principle in this text is this. It's called the Moses principle. The Moses principle of calling is this. What is it Moses alone should be doing? So you're putting off things into people who can do things, and that could be in a family, in a business, at church, a whole host of places. But what is it you should be doing? You alone. What are you called to do by God in the Spirit? Jethro says to Moses, You teach the law. That's your job. You handle the toughest cases because you know the law so well. You've been hanging out with the Lord, getting the law. You do this because that's what you are called to do. See, that's the question we've got to get back to. We touched on this last week. What am I called to do by God? Too many times we're just kind of impulsively making decisions about how to use our time. When we're not going to the Lord like, what do I need to do, Lord, relative to this opportunity. Now, let me help some people here with what you are called to do. Some of you here are a spouse. Let me guess, what is your calling? Hmm, to be a spouse to that one person. Not anybody else, the one person. What about a parent? Hmm, let's think about that one. You're to be the only parent, along with your spouse, with the kids that God gives you. Nobody else is the parent of those kids. If you're a church member, what are you supposed to be doing with your gifts and abilities in the church and your limited time? A couple of years ago, I was doing everything. And it wasn't because the church demanded it. It was because I wanted to do everything. I had my Moses complex. It's all about me. And then I asked the question, what am I responsible for here at Redeemer? And you know what I'm responsible for? This is number one right here. Preaching. Teaching. That's my call. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I can do a million other things but this is it with you guys. Here and now. That's my call. What is your call? What is your calling by God? How are you going to choose the best of God's calling over the good of the many opportunities you have? Okay, now I'm going to go to medley. Uh, Sociologists are telling us that there is one place that is sucking the life out of our time. It's the internet. Internet addiction is getting to be a serious problem. I know I get lost in it sometimes. I even did a study for 40 weeks, I mean, 40, 40 days. That's right, I'm an engineer by trade, I do all these numbers and stuff, of how much time I spent online. It wasn't pretty. And it's getting to be an issue for all of us of how much time we spend online. In fact, the Week magazine said uh, this past week that it's getting so bad that a 15-year-old girl from California recently wanted to evade her family's 10 p.m. internet curfew. So, what does she do? She allegedly drugged her parents with a sleeping pill-laced milkshake. After her folks woke up with horrific hangovers and realized she'd been on the net all night, they called the police to have her arrested. (laughs) So parents, if your kids near the end of the evening say, Mom, Dad, want a milkshake? Look out. Here's the question. How much time do you waste on the Internet? Listen to me. I'm not saying it's wrong to get on the Internet. The Internet's a good thing, although there are some really bad corners of the Internet you need to stay away from. What I'm saying is you must learn to choose the use of God's time in your life with an eternal point of view, even in the use of the Internet. It's not, I'm not saying you can't look at things on the Internet. I'm saying are you choosing well your time used even there? Limits are a blessing. Limits and saying no is actually where you have freedom to say yes in the right way. Are you called to something? uh, Are you called to things that you should be spending your time with beyond even the internet? Let's keep going. We've talked about how there's no sense of time, no sense of limits, no sense of calling. But there is one last thing that we have no sense of in our time. It's no sense of margin. Most of us live on the edge of our activities and end up being driven. Sadly, I am one of the chief offenders of this. The result is we often become exhausted and we're slaves to our schedules. We miss the larger point of where we're going, the ultimate purpose, the eternal God directing us and calling us to larger things. But here's the one thing that God has given us to help us, and it's margins. And here's what margins look like. This, here we are, is how much time, how much you can do things with your time. And you've got a fixed amount of time to do all the stuff you can in that time. Most of us often try to push the envelope and live right up here at this. But really, God created us to live down here. And that this little space right here between where we could live and where we should live is called margin. Let me put it in biblical terms. It's called Sabbath. Resting ceasing stopping what you're doing yes the good things you're doing so you might get a larger view of what's going on in life we have most definitely lost the idea of sabbath in our day and i know some of you hear the word sabbath and think Oh boy, here goes, Dean. All those rules: don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go. Women do on the Sabbath. Don't do this, do that. You can't do this. No, 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 no. no. Listen, Sabbath is about way more than um, than rules of what you can or can't do on the Lord's Day. Don't you know that Jesus Himself stopped? Jesus Himself practiced the Sabbath. He stopped. Now, he once in a while would heal on a Sabbath day because somebody was in desperate need of of, uh, healing, and so he took care of that. But he ceased, he stopped what he was doing. And he did it uh, in his life. And Sabbath, really, you've got to know, is then not about the rules. It is about taking time in the week when we cease to do good things like work so that We can focus on the work of God, beyond us, around us, and in the future waiting for us. That's what Sabbath is about, focusing on the work of God. You know what Sabbath is? Sabbath is where we stop and we rest in the sovereignty of God and say, Lord, I'm not going to work today because I trust that you will take care of me, that you're my Father and you are sovereign over all things, and it's not all up to me. Some of us, like me, just want to keep going, 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 and don't want to stop because we think, if I, if I stop, things won't happen. Oh, yeah, they will. God's in control. God's in control. Sabbath is where we go to stop and dwell on the fact that even though my work is messed up and doesn't always get right, even sin-laden, there is a Christ who is resurrected and who got it right once and for all, In his life, death, and resurrection. In fact, that's why we moved the Sabbath from Saturday to the Lord's Day of Sunday. Because we went from looking backwards at our work and going, oh, it's not enough. And looking backwards at what God had done and saying, I don't live up to your standards. To going to the first day of the week where we look forward and say, Jesus has accomplished everything. I want to live differently. I want to say yes to him and no to being driven even by good things. Sabbath is margin. It's margin. Folks, we all struggle with self-management, with our calling. Sabbath is where you stop and say, I'm going to trust that God is calling and I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to what He wants. Sabbath is where you look ahead to the future when Jesus will return And he will bring a new heavens and a new earth with it, where there will be no more sickness, sorrow, or tears. And will we be with God personally, in the city of God, the new Jerusalem? What you do on the Sabbath is you die to your sin and your worldliness, and you let the Holy Spirit resurrect you and give you eyes to see what would it be like to live then. I'll start living now, like I'm going to live then. That's what Sabbath is. Folks, uh, in a few weeks, on the week of Ju- uh, January 28th through February 3rd, we're going to practice some of this stuff together. We're going to think about time, among other things. And we're going to do it in what we're going to call, for the very first time at Redeemer, the week of Jubilee. The week of Jubilee, back in the Old Testament, was a time where uh, debts were forgiven, where slaves were set free, where people We're given an opportunity to to reset their lives entirely every 70 years. Well, While we don't have a year of Jubilee, we are going to have a week of Jubilee to reset. And what we're going to do is we're going to fast together. And I'm going to give you the joy of choosing what you're going to fast from. Some of you might fast from food. I've been doing that on and off for the last month trying to learn how to do it again because it's been a long time for me. And I can tell you from fasting that uh, when you say no to food, a good thing, so you can spend extra time with God and get focused on eternal things, it will stir you up. It will get hard at first. Some of you need to fast from the Internet. Just stop for a day. See what happens. Pay attention to the rhythms of your heart, because that will reveal what you want out of the Internet. Some of you need to fast from a host of other things. Your cell phone. Stop, uh, Teenagers, stop texting for one day. I know that's a hard thing. And I know you'll feel disconnected, but that's what it'll reveal, that you want to be connected, and that's why you go to the Lord with the time you'd spend on your cell phone, and you spend time with Him getting connected in prayer. During that week, we're going to all try and figure out why our lives are so rushed and crazy and driven. And we want that time to be a constructive time for all of us. As we stop and we look above the busyness of life, we get a sense, we move from rather no sense of time or limits, calling or margin to a sense of grace. That's what we want a sense of God's grace and presence here, now, and even into eternity. Look, the world goes by in a hurry, but the gospel is Christ was never, ever in a hurry. In fact, he's waiting to hear from you right now. Be still for a second. Know that he is God. And then give the eternal Lord your time. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and uh, admit that this is uh, big stuff. And I confess to you, Lord, that this is a hard one for me. I want to do everything. I love every opportunity. But, Lord, I pray you give us an eternal view, all of us, of where this is all going and what our role is now, even saying no to good things now so that we might enjoy even far greater things in the future and certainly even the best now. Lord Jesus, Awaken our hearts, Lord. Stewardship is not natural. It is very difficult, but it is entirely of your grace. Holy Spirit, lead us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.